Ave Maria Purissima, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, we're going to spend some time this morning speaking about the life of grace. Grace means free gift. Remember, it's a, a free gift from God. Now, as we all know, there's more than one type of grace. For example, actual grace. Actual grace gives us the supernatural power to do supernaturally good acts, like praying or repenting, making a good confession, and so forth. So actual grace supernaturalizes the way we act. But sanctifying grace changes our being. It changes how we are. Sanctifying grace sanctifies it. It makes us be holy. It's actually another kind of life. Incredibly enough, it's actually a created share in God's own life that he places into our soul to give us a new type of life, supernatural life. And this makes us be holy. This is what St. Peter's referring to in 2 Peter 1.4 when he writes of us becoming partakers of the divine nature. He's talking about this created share in God's own life that he places into our soul and makes us be holy. And that's called sanctifying grace. And that's what we mean when we talk about being in the state of grace. So actual grace gives us the power to do actual good works, supernaturally good works. Somebody doesn't have to be in the state of grace and they respond to actual graces. They repent. They return to Christ. That is an actual grace. Sanctifying grace is is a created share. Again, this is so important to understand. A created share in God's own life, but he places into our soul. And that makes us be holy. And again, Scripture speaks of this as being partakers of the divine nature. Now, because of Adam's sin, men fell from grace. Excepting for Our Lady... Men are now conceived without sanctifying grace. Men are now conceived without this supernatural life. And naturally speaking, there isn't a single thing that any of us can do about this, okay? So what's the big deal? Why why should this be a concern? Doesn't it seem like men can get through all life without sanctifying grace? Well, of course they can with varying degrees of success. But here's the problem. It's not enough. Our natural life is not enough. Adam left us in a very real predicament. In order to live the life of heaven, in order to even get to heaven when we die, we have to be supernaturally alive. We have to have sanctifying grace. That's an absolute. If we die with sanctifying grace... We can live the life of heaven. If we die without sanctifying grace, we can't live the life of heaven. And that means that we'd have to go to hell. Everybody needs to understand that. In order for our soul to go to heaven when we die, it has to receive powers above its nature. Supernatural power. The supernatural power only comes from God as his free gift. And we can only get it in this life. The great Catholic author Frank Sheed commented that sanctifying grace is given to man in this life. What man does with it is the primary story of his life. 
Everything else is incidental, on the fringe, of no permanent importance. When we come to die, we are judged by the answer to that one question, whether we have the supernatural life in our soul. If the answer is yes, then to heaven we shall surely go, for the supernatural life is the power to live in heaven. If the answer is no, then we cannot possibly go to heaven, for we could not live there when we got there. What are we saying? We're saying that if we die with this power, this supernatural power, the supernatural power of sanctifying grace, our soul can get to heaven. And once it gets there, our soul can live in heaven. If we die without this power, our soul can't get to heaven. And even if it could get there, we couldn't live there. If we die with the supernatural power, supernatural power of sanctifying grace, the supernatural life of sanctifying grace, our soul can get to heaven. If we die without this power, our soul can't get to heaven. And that means that it will plunge into hell. That's pure and simple. So everybody needs to burn one thing into their mind. The most important thing I'll ever do is die. If I die with sanctifying grace, if I die with a supernatural life, I can live in heaven. If I die without supernatural life, I can't. Now today we're going to talk more about the supernatural life of grace. We're going to talk more about the life of sanctifying grace. And to do that, we'll rely principally on the brilliant work of the last great Thomistic theologian, Father Reginald Gargou Lagrange, O.P. We'll start, though, with an analogy used by St. Thomas himself. Really quickly for the younger folks here, what does it mean to use an analogy? An analogy is a kind of a comparison. When we draw an analogy between two things, we're trying to understand something. And so we compare one thing that we're familiar with to another thing that we don't know much about. So that's what an analogy is. So in order to understand the supernatural life of sanctifying grace, we're going to start with an analogy. We're going to compare the supernatural life of sanctifying grace to the three periods or stages of natural life. Childhood, adolescence, manhood. So although early childhood or infancy lasts till the age of reason, some, somewhere around the age of seven, uh, childhood itself lasts somewhere until around the age of 13 or 14 till puberty. Youth or adolescence lasts from 13 or 14 from puberty till about the age of 20, roughly speaking, and manhood falls upon that. These uh, three levels of maturity, so to speak, uh, these three stages of the natural life are analogous to stages in the spiritual life. But in order to appreciate that, in order to really draw out the analogy, we need to consider a few more details. Garriger, quote, A man's mentality changes with his development. The activity of a child is not that of a man in miniature. The dominant element in childhood is different. The child has, has, has as yet no discernment, is unable to organize itself in a rational manner. It follows the lead of the imagination and impulses of the senses. 
And even when its reason begins to awaken, it still remains to a great deal dependent upon its senses. Most important to be noted for the purposes of our present subject is a transition from childhood to adolescence and from youth to manhood. The period of puberty, which is the end of childhood, roughly the age of 14, is characterized by transformation which is not only organic, but also psychological, intellectual, and moral. The youth is no longer content to follow his imagination as the child was. He begins to reflect on the things of human life, on the need to prepare himself for some career or occupation in the future. He no longer has the child's attitude towards family, social, and religious matters. His moral personality begins to take shape and he acquires the sense of honor and the importance of a good reputation. Or else, on the contrary, if he passes unsuccessfully through this difficult period, he deteriorates and follows evil courses. The law of nature so ordains that the transition from childhood to youth must follow a normal development. Otherwise, the subject will assume a positive bias to evil, or he'll remain a half-wit for the rest of his life. He who makes no progress loses ground. If the physical and moral crisis of puberty is a difficult transition, the same is to be said of another crisis, which we may call the crisis of first freedom, which occurs at the stage where the youth enters manhood about the age of 20. The young man, having now reached his complete physical development, has, has to begin to take his place in social life. It will soon be time for him to marry and to become an educator in his own turn, unless he has received from God a higher vocation still. Many fail to surmount this crisis of first freedom. Like the prodigal son, depart from their father's home and confuse liberty with license. Here again, the law ordains that the transition must be made normally. Otherwise, the young man either takes the wrong road or his development is arrested and he becomes one of those of whom it is said he'll be a child for the rest of his life. The true adult is not merely a young man grown a little older. He has a new mentality. He's preoccupied with wider questions, questions to which the youth does not yet advert. Close quotes, Father Gary Lagrange. Okay. So there are three stages of natural life. Childhood, youth or adolescence, and manhood. Each stage has a characteristic mentality. The child... Either after, either after having reached the age of reason, is preoccupied largely with his imagination and senses. An adolescent begins to reflect on the business of human life, on the need to prepare himself for his future with some career or occupation. He no longer has a child's attitude towards his family, towards social and religious matters. His moral personality begins to take shape, and he acquires the sense of honor understands the necessity of a good reputation. The adult, of course, has a different mentality than the adolescent and concerns itself with wider men. And in this natural development, there are two transitions, two crises that need to be successfully navigated in order to continue to develop normally. The first crisis is a crisis of puberty, which if he negotiates successfully, he'll mature normally. But if he passes unsuccessfully through it, he'll deteriorate and have a positive bias towards evil. In our dark times, and you don't need me to point this out, 
but uh, we see it most commonly, this propensity towards evil and crisis that happens in purity that is not negotiated successfully, and that's largely, and especially because of the result of the breakdown of the family and the evil influence of the media and the Internet. So this young person gets hooked in vices that are unbelievable when he's doing that transition or before, and it ends up warping him. We're only speaking naturally. Supernaturally, this can be cured, but naturally it can't be. It can only be coped with. Okay, the second crisis is a crisis of first freedom. And that's that transition from adolescence to adulthood. And again, if someone negotiates that successfully, he'll pass through the ranks of the normal functioning adults. But if he passes unsuccessfully through this difficult time of his first freedom and falls into the ranks of prodigals, his life will become a struggle. And again, although with grace this condition can be healed, his life will become a struggle and he will be, to varying degrees, a wounded and stunted personality. And all this is analogous to spiritual life, the life of sanctifying grace. In the spiritual life, the supernatural life of those in the state of grace, in the life of sanctifying grace, there are three ages which are analogous to the three ages, naturally speaking, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. For the rest of the sermon, that's what we're going to talk about. So in the supernatural life, there are three ages of the supernatural life, and they're analogous to the three natural ages of childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. We'll start with the bottom. As Scripture says, by nature we are children of wrath. That's the predicament Adam put us into. And that's the significance of baptism. At our baptism, the supernatural life of sanctifying grace was poured into those of us that were baptized as children. There's several other possibilities. We'll cover those at a later date. So baptism, the supernatural life of grace, is poured into us. And as long as we don't ever commit a mortal sin, it will remain with us till we die. Mortal sin is, in fact, supernatural suicide. It absolutely destroys the life of grace in us, and we become spiritually dead. Which means, if we die in that condition, without the supernatural life, we can't be saved. But when someone has been baptized and put in a state of grace, he now has a supernatural life, which corresponds to natural childhood. The spiritual life at this stage is known as the purgative life, or the life of beginners. And it has a particular focus. Gergo explains, Above the condition of hardened sinners, above the state of those sensual souls who live in dissipation, conversion or justification sets us in the state of grace. Grace, which sin ought never to destroy us. Grace, which like a supernatural seed, ought to continually grow until it has reached its full development in the immediate vision of the divine essence and a perfect love which will last forever. After conversion, there ought to be a serious beginning of the purgative life, in which beginners love God by avoiding mortal sin and deliberate venial sin through exterior and interior mortification and through prayer. But in actual fact, this purgative life is found under two very different forms. In some, admittedly very few, this life is intense, generous. It is the narrow way of perfect self-denial described by the saints. In many others, the purgative life appears in an attenuated form, 
Vary from good souls who are a little weak down to those tepid and retarded souls who from time to time fall into mortal sin. The same remark will have to be made for the other two ways, each of which is likewise found in an attenuated, in an intense form. Close quotes. Okay. So the first age of the spiritual life, the age of a spiritual child, as it were, is known as the purgative life or the life of beginners. And the focus on this stage should be on continually staying in the state of grace by avoiding all mortal sin and all deliberate venial sin, on denying self, on conquering vices and evil tendencies, and on growing in the virtues by faithfully performing exterior and interior mortifications, and upon developing a true life of prayer. Now at this time, uh, the kind of prayer that a beginner has in prayer of life is called discursive prayer. They think they go from one point to another, one point to another when they're praying. And I'm not ta- when I'm speaking of the life of prayer, I'm not talking about reading prayers. A lot of times that's just so much chatter. People pile prayer after prayer. They're not praying. Praying is lifting your heart and mind to God. It's not doing a whole list of things. When you're saying the rosary, you should try to think about the mysteries. Because we've fallen, it's quite easy to be distracted. In fact, it's amazing if you're not distracted, sometimes maybe infrequently. St. Teresa Avila, great doctor of the church, one of the greatest mystics in history, called her mind the mad woman in the house because it went here and there. But we will to keep thinking. And when we find out, wait, I'm shopping, she comes back to praying. Whoops, I'm over here doing the dishes. She comes back. That's what it is. Distraction, if it's not deliberate, is not a problem. If you're trying to say your rosary and watch baseball, that's not, no, that's not going to work. You've got to say your rosary. Okay? But discursive prayer is going from one point to the other. We'll talk about mental prayer a little later because it's so important. But the one mental prayer everybody should know is the rosary. And the other one is how to unite themselves at Mass. And I have talked about that. Prayer is not making a bunch of words. Prayer is not getting frantically through 50 prayers that they think they're praying a day as fast as they can. It's better to have one devotion and do it well than a pile of them and just chatter away like some chipmunk, Okay. This is serious if you want to grow. Okay, now, at this point in life, if people are generous in doing these things in the purgative way, then their mental prayer, the rosary and stuff, will be marked uh, by uh, many sensible consolations, typically at various times. Garagou explains, and I'll make some other comments. Garagou, beginners who are truly generous love God with a holy fear of sin which causes them to avoid mortal sin and even deliberate venial sin by dint of mortifying the senses and concupiscences in the various forms. When they've been engaged for a certain time in this generous effort, they're usually rewarded by some sensible consolations in prayer from the study of divine things. What's a sensible consolation? It feels good. They're getting warm fuzzies or something. They feel like, well, this is really great. It's it just there's something good about it. That's why it's called sensible. They can sense it. It feels good. Okay? In this way, God wins over their sensibility. For it is by their sensibility, he's talking about beginners, it's by their sensibility they chiefly live. He directs it, their sensibility, away from dangerous things towards himself. 
At this stage, a generous beginner already loves God with all his heart, but not yet with all his soul, with all his strength, with all his mind. Close quote. That's Gerigo explaining. But as Gerigo points out, there are in fact two very, very different forms of the purgative life. In some, who sadly are actually very few, this life is intense and generous. They generally are striving and being generous about striving on the straight and narrow path with self-denial. In many others, the purgative life appears in a weak and attenuated form, varying from good souls who are a little weak down to the tepid and retarded souls who from time to time fall into mortal sin. And tepid and retarded soul, another word for that, the scriptural word is lukewarm. It's a scary place to be. People think, yeah, I'll go to Mass on Sunday, but it doesn't really matter what I watch on TV. You know, I can go to confession. I'll go to Mass on Sunday. It doesn't matter if I drink too much. It doesn't matter if I cuss and swear using the Lord's name. It doesn't matter if I steal. You know, people, they're trying to make compromises. Let's just make one thing really clear in our minds. Everybody needs to do this. God makes no compromises. God says it, and that's it. What he says is true. What he says has force. There are no compromises with God, so we're just lying to ourselves. We think we're going to cut a corner. There are no corners to God. He's a God of mercy, but he's not a God of compromise. No compromises. None. Okay. So if someone's faithful in a striving, he's going to come to a transition. It's from the age of spiritual childhood, the purgative life, the life of a beginner, to the spiritual age, which is analogous to the age of an adolescent. This life is called the luminative life, or the life of proficiency. And during the transition from the spiritual childhood, the purgative life, to the spiritual adolescence, the luminative life, there's a crisis. And before we go any farther on a point, every one of you here, by virtue of your baptism, is absolutely called to the luminative life. It should be a normal way of development. I hate to say it's extremely rare, but that's always on the side of us, not on the side of God. How generous are we going to be? How clearly do we see what he put us in the world to do? This life just passes through your It's going to be gone before you know it. Even if somebody had to live 100 years, and I won't wish that on my worst enemy, but even if somebody had to live 100 years, that's nothing compared to eternity. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? So... If someone's faithful and is struggling, he's going to get to his transition. It's going to be a crisis between the spiritual childhood, the purgative life, and the luminative life. And that crisis is known as the dark night of the senses or the passive purification of the senses. I quote from Garrett. The transition to the luminative life follows upon certain sensible consolations which generally reward the courageous effort of mortification. As the soul lingers in the enjoyment of these consolations, God withdraws them. And then the soul finds itself in that more long, long, less prolonged aridity of the senses, which is known as a passive purification of the senses. We pause for a moment. What happens is God has given consolations to someone generous, sensible consolations. But then what do we do in our false state? 
we fall in love with the consolations. So we're, after a while, we're praying because we like how it feels. Because that's the fallen nature. Guess what? We're not speaking here, but the rest of us, that's how it is. Not to be alone. So what does God do? He takes the consolations away. It's not a punishment. It's an encouragement. We're supposed to be in love with the God of consolations, not the consolations of God. And so he takes them away to encourage us. It is very painful for someone who gets there. Okay, so this purgation, I go back to, to Garibu. This purgation persists unceasingly in generous souls and leads them by way of initial infused contemplation to the full element of life. All of a sudden, their prayer becomes simpler and simpler. Instead of going from this point to that point to this point to that point, they go to this point. And there they are. And they're not doing that by their own power. God is working in their soul. They're, contempl- they're actually entering contemplation. That's why it's called illumination. And then they'll get lights and prayer. They'll understand. They'll penetrate deeper into a particular mystery of the rosary. Into some particular event. Into something of Holy Mass. Into something in the Holy Scriptures. They'll all of a sudden understand it at a much deeper level. And this isn't with little voices and stuff like that. It's actually a light. Okay? So, Gergu. This purgation persists unceasingly in generous souls and leads them by way of initial infused contemplation to the full element of life. In other souls that are less generous, souls that shun the cross, the purgation is often interrupted. And these souls will enjoy only an attenuated or a weakened form of illuminative life. And will receive the gift of infused contemplation only at long intervals. Thus the passive night of the senses seem to be a second conversion, more or less perfect. Close quote. He continues to explain more about it, and then I'll, I'll illustrate some more of the comments. A second conversion becomes necessary, described by St. John of the Cross under the name of the passive purgation of the senses. Of this, St. John says it is common and comes to many. These are beginners. And its purpose is to lead them onto the roadway of the Spirit, which is that of progressives and proficients. The way of infused contemplation, wherewith God himself feeds and refreshes the soul. This purgation is characterized by a prolonged dryness, in which the beginner is deprived of all sensible consolations, in which he takes him too great pleasure. If in the midst of this dryness there's an intense desire for God, desire should reign in us, together with a fear of offending him, then this is a second sign that it is a divine purgation. Still more so to this intense desire for God, there's added difficulty in praying, according to the discursive method from this point to that, and an inclination towards a prayer of simple regard of love. That's the third sign the second conversion is in progress, that the soul is being raised up to a higher life, that of a limited way, and everyone here is called to that. If the soul endures this purgation satisfactorily, its sensibility becomes more and more subject to the spirit. The soul is cured of its spiritual greed and of the pride that it led it to pose as a master. It learns better to recognize its own neediness. Not infrequently, in other words, calmly, other difficulties arise that pertain to the progress of purgation. For example, in study, in our relations with persons to whom we are too greatly attached, and from whom God now swiftly and painfully detaches our affections. 
At this time, too, there often arise grave temptations against chastity and patience, temptations which God allows so that by reaction against them, these virtues, which reside in a sensible part of our nature, may become more and more firmly rooted in us. Illness, too, may be sent to try us during this period. In this crisis, God tills the ground of the soul, digging deeper in the fear which he, he put, placed into us at, our, at the beginning of our first conversion. He uproots the evil weeds. This crisis is not without its dangers, like the crisis of the 14th or 15th year in the development of a natural life. Some prove faithless to the vocation. People will turn back, even when you tell them this is what you're going through. They don't want it. They want to go back to when it felt good. But you actually can, can't get back there. It's like trying to say, you know, I want to go back in the cradle. Well, good luck on that one, you know. That, that just isn't going to happen. All right? And, and so, they, they, in other words, they warp themselves, and so they don't enter into the limited way. And uh, in them, the words of the Scripture are fulfilled. They've not done the time of their visitation. These souls, especially if they're in the religious or priestly state, are not tending to perfection as they should, and unconsciously are stopping others from doing so, placing serious obstacles in the way of those who really desire to make progress. That's really important. That's really important. Now, why is God doing this passive purification? Because our efforts can only go so far. We mortify ourselves, but there's only so much virtue we can get out of it. We do all these practices only so much. So, but we're so damaged from original actual sin that he reaches in and then he's basically realigning our senses. So it's like spiritual body work. If you ran a pickup in an oak tree and totaled it, then all the banging out of all that to get that thing so it's, it's going, let's say, say it still runs, but you can't do anything with it. The engine and drivetrain are fine, but it's like, you've got to sit there and beat that out. That's basically analogous to what God's doing in your senses. He's straightening everything back up the way it should have been and never was. Thank you very much, Adam. So he's straightening out your senses. And that's why it's so painful. He's in there working, and that's why we have to be generous. But it isn't Barney, which a lot of people seem to think. It's not like, let's all hold hands and be happy go to heaven. It's a crucifix that's a symbol of our holy religion. We're being conformed to crucify the Lord. So it is a crucifixion, but there's a joy in the pain. Our Lord had a spiritual joy in all that suffering, and he'll give that to the people that are generous. They get, in spite of its aridity, and it's horrible, he'll give them what they need. But you got to will it. I can only talk about this stuff. You have to will it. I can't will it for you. You have to will it. And when you're laying on your deathbed, you'll never regret being generous with him. There's a lot of things you're going to regret, maybe, hopefully not. But you'll never regret being generous with him. Look what he's done for you. Everyone here is called to this. So they transform through that crisis and they get to the illuminative way. And so what that happens, Gary Ruiz talks a little bit about it. The illuminative life brings with it the obscure, infused contemplation of the mysteries of faith. A contemplation that had already been initiated in the passive night of the senses. Okay, so what happens is we have that. It stops. Now, I'm, I'm only going to go to this in the sermon because I don't want to go too long. 
there's one more crisis of a person who's, who's really generous and calls him, that's a crisis on the way to spiritual adulthood. And that's the dark night of his spirit. And then they become, they're in a unitive way where they're called perfect. Now I've actually, at the exits, I've left a little diagram. I took it from Garibu on what all this. And you start at the bottom and go up. So it has everything here. Purgative life of beginners. Eliminative life of proficients, unitive life of the perfect. So you can see what the, what a, what a child what, what goes from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, what it would look like in the spiritual life. And everybody should start shooting to climb up that and as quickly as you can on your side. If you're generous, he's never outdone in generosity. Pray. Pray to go in holiness. Pray to move up in the spiritual life. Pray for it and will it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.